what a good God we serve. Amen. Um, before I get into this sermon, I just want to name that we don't declare that God is good in hard circumstances as sort of a like a perk ourselves up activity. We do it because worship is warfare. And I've learned in my own life that when I face circumstances with gratitude and continue again and again and again to stand on who God says he is, rather than my circumstances, my victory is around the corner. And so, friends, the things you declared out loud and internally, I, I want to hear. <laughs> what does God do with the warfare of your praise? So, praise God. All right. So, we are in Matthew And as we've heard this morning, we are in the most famous sermon of all, and specifically that beautiful little chunk called the Beatitudes. Now, if you remember, within the Beatitudes, Jesus is describing the character and attitudes that he calls us to. So if Jesus is Lord of your life, these are the attitudes and responses that he calls for. And as we've heard probably every week, they are not pick and choose. It's not a buffet. We are called to all of these attitudes and attributes. And so with that, we're going to read all the Beatitudes. We're in Matthew 5. It's verses 3 to 12. And this morning we're going to do something different. If you have a Bible with you or on your phone, I want to invite you to pull that out. I'm in the NIV. Um, And I'm wondering if you'll read with me verses 3 to 9. And then I'll take over in the end chunk because that's what we're looking at today. Does that make sense? So we'll read 3 to 9 together. Matthew 5, starting at verse 3. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. If I'm honest with you, this is not a text that I would choose. You find those parts of scripture where you feel kind of a resistance to it, right? Like I don't I don't really want to know <laughs> what that might mean. What does it mean to be blessed when I'm persecuted? And I'm not confident that my reaction to being lied about or slandered is to rejoice, right? This is 
it's a hard text to wrap yourself around. And whether this is the first time we've heard these verses or the hundredth time, I think they're just incredibly challenging. But as I dug into them, I found that the more we dig into those hard pieces of Scripture, the better God gets. Have you experienced this? Like those texts where God does not feel good, he's so good. And so brace yourself. <laughs> this, is, this is going to be hard, but it's going to be good. Amen? All right, so the first thing I noted when I dug into this is that I was personally convicted about how little I knew about persecution. How much persecution is happening in the world today? Where is it happening? I felt like I didn't know much, and I didn't actually know much about what Scripture says about persecution. So let's just dive right in here. Here are a few statistics that I came across regarding what's going on in the world today. Now, Open Doors, have you heard of Open Doors? It's a ministry, okay? Open Doors is a ministry that researches and aids the global persecuted church. And each year they publish this watch list, and it's the top 50 places where people are persecuted, ranked from worst all the way down. If you make the top 50 list, it's pretty bad. Um, and then along with that, they, they put statistics together. And so these are the statistics that came out of the year 2022. Globally, more than 360 million Christians suffer at least high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. 360 million. In 1993, Christians faced high to extreme levels of persecution in 40 countries, and this number has nearly doubled to 76 countries in 2022. In the top 50 countries alone, 312 million Christians now face very high or extreme levels of persecution. And so if you do the math, worldwide, one in seven Christians now experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. One in seven. Persecution of Christians has continued to intensify Globally, reaching the highest levels that have been documented in 30 years. We are at an all-time high. And from the data gathered, this is the list of the 50 most dangerous countries in the world for Christians to live in 2023. North Korea, Somalia, Yemen, Eritrea, Libya, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, Sudan, India, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Myanmar, the Maldives, China, Mali, Iraq, Algeria, Mauritania, Uzbekistan, Colombia, Burkina Faso, Central Africa Republic, Vietnam, Turkmenistan, Cuba, Niger, Morocco, Bangladesh, Laos, Mozambique, Indonesia, Qatar, Egypt, Tunisia, Congo, Mexico, Ethiopia, Bhutan, Turkey, Comoros, Malaysia, Tajikistan, Cameroon, Brunei, Oman, Kazakhstan, Jordan, and Nicaragua. And I name them all because they all matter. I hadn't even heard of some of these countries. I hadn't heard of them, and yet we have brothers and sisters in these nations 
facing extreme levels of persecution for the sake of Jesus. Persecution has been a thing since Jesus got here, and it'll still be here when Jesus returns again. And so it it should come as no surprise that Jesus had a few things to say about persecution because he knew it was coming and he's a good, good father who does not leave his children unprepared. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus' brief comments about persecution come at the end of these beatitudes, these these virtue statements. It does feel kind of bizarre, right? Like, blessed are the peace, P.S., blessed are the persecuted. It seems incongruent. And yet he did that on purpose. See, throughout the Beatitudes, Jesus is drawing the boundary lines that should define and separate Christians from the culture of the world. The world doesn't value meekness. No one wins a Dundee Award for being righteous or merciful or pure in heart. These things run in opposition to the pride-filled, self-seeking, do-what's-right-for-you world that we live in. So if you put this all together, it's almost like Jesus is saying, Beloved, listen, you are inherently designed to be a thorn in the side of the earth. You are to be different. You behave differently. You react differently. You view things differently. And that's going to create tension. And it's a point of tension that will result in conflict. The prophet Isaiah referred to Jesus as a rock upon which the earth would stumble. Like we are rocks for the earth to stumble upon. The great pastor and theologian Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He said, the only homage which wickedness could ever pay to righteousness is to persecute it. It's it's natural. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you if people insult you persecute you and falsely say evil things about you. He says, blessed are you. Oh, the deep, deep joy of you when it happens. To live with kingdom attitudes and in kingdom behavior is to be in conflict with the world. Friends, we were made to start fires. If we're not starting fires, we're not doing it right. And the world reacts to this kind of conflict in a variety of ways. Sometimes we think of persecution only in terms of like um, being burned at the stake or, or put in the Colosseum with lions, right? But there's, there's a spectrum here. Jesus actually gives us a spectrum of responses. Persecution can come in the form of everything from misunderstanding and gossip and slander and insults to that form of outright violence and even martyrdom. It's always been this way. The early church faced everything from social stigma and a multitude of false allegations. Like, you've probably heard this, but the early church was accused of being cannibals because of their teaching on communion, right? We consume the body and blood of Christ. To the world, that was, we should put these people in jail. They're cannibals. Misunderstandings, false allegations. The early church also faced 300 years of outright discrimination where they weren't allowed to gather. Their businesses were treated with contempt. Their leaders were jailed and beat and stoned. And many... Many were violently martyred. And so when you look at that, and you look at this watch list that we just read, I deeply appreciate that Jesus himself allows for a spectrum. Because it it feels somehow wrong to say that you and I are persecuted in that kind of context. And yet in some forms, 
I think we do see persecution in our context today. Here are just a few examples. In its simplest form, when Christians are referred to as bigots or are ostracized for not agreeing with the LGBTQ plus agenda, this is a form of discrimination. When Christian business owners and companies are negatively targeted for promoting biblical values, there's hostility there that could be called discrimination. When Christian teachers in public schools are forced to teach certain content or refer to students by pronouns that differ from God's design for them, this can be a form of discrimination. When you and I are socially ostracized, and insulted in the workplace or in schools because of our religious beliefs. These are mild, sneaky forms of discrimination. Persecution is at a pretty low level in our context today, and yet, Scripture says as we draw closer to the end, we don't know when that's coming, but this is the trajectory that we are on, we will see an escalation in these things. And so an argument could be made that perhaps today is the training academy for tomorrow. Perhaps the minor persecutions of today are God's gift of grace to train and to strengthen us for what may come tomorrow. Now at this point, you're probably wondering, Pastor Julie, so this is a real downer. (laughs) I get it, right? Persecution is bad. It's still a thing. It happens here too. It could get worse, but what's the point? Where's that good news? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. I would like to posit to you that persecution actually serves a profound purpose in the kingdom of God. And I'd even go so far as to say that persecution can actually be a means for God's grace. To enter the world. Let me say that again. Persecution may even be a means of God's grace to enter the world. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people persecute you, insult you, and say all kinds of evil things against you. Rejoice and be glad. The Greek there literally means leap for joy. For great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who came before you. So leave for joy when you're persecuted because you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And your reward, when it comes, is worth leaping for. So it's clear that God pours out his grace to Christians when they're persecuted, and that's, that's great. But I think there's more. The great 2nd century church father Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now Tertullian lived in a time of great persecution and also of great church expansion. And because of his observations, there's been this long-standing sort of understanding that when the church is persecuted, it grows. The underground church grows. And sometimes that has been true, but it's not always true. Sometimes the church has numerically exploded under persecution, and at other times, whole masses of believers have been evacuated from countries. And believers who endured and survived persecution are often left with physical and psychological scars that are not healed on this side of heaven. But 
In some cases, persecution does embolden believers and evangelists and underground churches bubble up seemingly out of nowhere. And church growth can be good, one good fruit of persecution. When I lived in Bahrain, I went to a youth leader convention. It was a convention planned to train youth leaders on how to reach Muslim populations. Um, And out of nowhere, a van pulled up to the hotel where we were meeting and like 20 people came out and they were church leaders from Saudi Arabia had no idea who they were, had existed, but they heard about it. They couldn't, like, register because they could get caught, but they came. Stories and stories of churches just bubbling up out of nowhere. It happens. And, friends, that's not enough yet. There's still more grace. The Apostle Peter had much to say about facing persecution in First Peter. Now, it's a super short book. If you have time this afternoon, I would encourage you to read all the way through First Peter a few times. It's, <laughs> it's kind of mind-blowing. But Peter says... Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And that inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined may fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. So enduring under hardship has the effect of proving our faith. It refines it, it strengthens it, and it gives glory to Jesus. In 1 Peter 2.12, Peter says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is where it starts to get really interesting to me. So in addition to all these benefits and rewards for Christians, for you and I who are persecuted, there are rewards for the persecutors. Follow this with me. Romans 12.21 says, Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So evil can be overcome with good. You all agree? Okay. So in John 20, when Jesus is sending his disciples out, he says this sort of strange thing to them. He says, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So as he sends his disciples out, he tells them to do the work of forgiving. And he tells them that this has extreme impact. Like the degree to which they forgive people has to do with whether or not they're forgiven. Friends, just as sin, unrepentant, unforgiven sin, creates a foothold for the devil... Forgiveness creates a foothold for the Holy Spirit. When you and I are sinned against and we refuse to forgive, the devil is given a foothold. He gets to work in us, he gets to continue to work through that sin, and he gets to work in the perpetrator's life. But when we as Christians choose to truly forgive in Christ, And when we bless those who sin against us, the devil loses that foothold. And instead, it's given to the Holy Spirit. And he gets to begin to work. 
So if we use this logic, persecution actually presents Christians with an evangelical opportunity. To receive persecution is to be given an evangelical opportunity to turn what our enemy meant for bad into an opportunity for God to work good. Does that not just blow your mind? So good. As I was preparing for this message, a paper was sent to me, and it was written by a missionary named Ruth Feldkamp, who many people here may know. And in her paper, Ruth tells this incredible story that makes my point so much more clearly, and it's much more entertaining. And so I'm, I'm going to read Ruth's story. So this is Ruth Feldkamp. She's a, she's a missionary. She writes, years ago, I met someone who really understood this Easter brand of forgiveness. Ali was following up some new believers in a Muslim city. The police arrested him, took him to the police station and beat him. Then they asked him, who are you working for? Who are you working with? Ali answered, I'm working for Jesus the Messiah. I'm working with Jesus the Messiah, and the work he gave me to do is to forgive people. So I forgive you, because you don't know what you're doing. What do you mean, we don't know what we're doing? The burly policeman shouted at him. Well, you were told to beat me, but were you told what crime I had committed? No, they answered. Ali added, that's why I said you don't know what you're doing. But you can also tell those who told you to beat me that I forgive them too. And so they did. The authorities told the police to beat him again. This is the second beating. Was this second beating more or less severe than the first one? Now, normally the second beating would have been more severe because they would have really wanted to break him. But Ali had forgiven his persecutors in the power of the Spirit of Jesus and the power of God himself. And when the power of God comes upon someone, what happens to their ability to do evil? Is it strengthened or weakened? Of course, the power of God is stronger than the power of evil, and that's why that second beating was less severe. Not because of the authorities or the police, it was because of the power of God restraining them. After the second beating, the police asked Ali the same questions. Who are you working for? Who are you working with? And Ali gave the same answers. I'm working for Jesus the Messiah. I'm working with Jesus the Messiah, and the work he gave me is to forgive people. And so, I forgive you. Again, the police reported his answer to the authorities, and the authorities said, well, beat him again. What about that third beating? Was it more or less than the second? Of course it was less. God's power coming through Ali's forgiveness was overcoming the power of evil in their lives. And after the third beating, the police asked the same question, and Ali gave the same answers again and again, but this time the authorities ordered that he be released on one condition— he must promise never to come back to their city again. Ali answered, I told you I'm working for Jesus the Messiah. If he tells me to come back to this city because there's more sins to be forgiven, I'll come back. So the police reported this answer to the authorities, and the authorities simply said, let him go. As Ali left the police station, he asked the policemen if he could pray for them, and they agreed. God Almighty, he prayed, we have just had another change of government. And at times such as this, people lose their jobs. And so I pray for these men that you will help them to keep their jobs so they can feed their families. And the police station resounded with a loud, Amen. Ali continued, God, I'm leaving them now, but I ask that your spirit will remain in them to lead them into all truth. And there was another loud, Amen. Ali left them and made the five-hour trip back home. I went to visit 
him with a friend and he was lying sideways on the couch because of his beating and his pain, but his face was shining. I'm a beloved son of God, he said. God would never allow anyone to beat me or hurt me in any way, any more than I would see someone bullying my child and just watch unless he had a reason. And the only reason that I can think of is that those people beating me needed to experience the power of God's forgiveness coming through a human being. And God chose me. And then he added, I know that the forgiveness God gave me to pass on to them will not be in vain. At least one of them will come around later to find out more. Some months later, a tall, well-dressed man from that city came to visit Ali. And after some talking, he confessed that he had been the judge who ordered those beatings. But there was something inside him, he said, pushing him to come to Ali. And after more discussion, Ali led that judge to confess all his sins to the Lord and be forgiven in Christ. And the judge studied the Bible with Ali and experienced more and more of the spirit of Jesus in his life. And eventually, that judge became a leader of a church in a Muslim city. And he led many other Muslims into the way of Jesus. What if Ali had not forgiven his persecutors in Christ? I thank God for Ali's forgiveness and for this forgiveness that made a difference. That sin of beatings was no longer available to Satan to use for his purposes. Ali had taken that sin and he gave it to Christ under the power of the cross. And that kind of persistent forgiveness weakens the power of sin in those we forgive. And it opens them up to experience the grace of God. Hallelujah. Friends, when we endure hardship the way that God tells us to, even the vilest offenders of this world are put in a position to receive the grace of God. It's incredible. Now, most of us don't live in a country where we're going to be pulled into a prison and beat because we believe in Jesus. And I pray that it stays that way. But all of us likely have someone to forgive or bless in ways that may strengthen us to forgive even bigger things down the road. And as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but notice that we are entering into an election season. And I'm remembering the divisiveness that have come out of the last two election seasons. And for many of us, when we're looking at the ballot, the question on our minds is who will allow space for Christian ethic and virtue and who will not? And whoever we disagree with tends to be someone that we might label as a persecutor. Right? And so I have to wonder, what might this election season look like if we as believers committed to radically forgiving and blessing everyone from our uncle at the Thanksgiving table to the politicians that represent us or might represent us? the way that Ali blessed his persecutors. We were designed to light fires. And when we light fires, the world is refined. Amen? I want to open us up for a little bit of a time of prayer. Just to make some space. And it seems to me that there's an abundance of things that the Lord might invite us to pray together. We could pray for the persecuted church around the world. 
we could pray for our country entering into this season. We could pray for the strengthening of Christ's body to live into this kind of radical forgiveness and blessing and grace. And I just, I just want to welcome all your prayers. And so I'll open and then I'll leave some space and invite you to, to pray nice and loud from your seat. God, I thank you that you are so good. God, you're good in ways that I didn't even fathom and still don't fathom. And God, I thank you for the ways that you use hardship in this world to become an avenue for your grace. And so, God, I ask that you would um, bubble up in this church how you would have us pray for your body.